0: We're continuing our series on little books, big messages. And some of these books are really little. John's writing this one. It's the book of 2 John that we're reading today. Uh, and, And some of what you need to understand about John's heart for truth and love is understanding how much he gets his need for truth and love and how much he understands truth and love from his experience with Jesus, that he got to spend several years as the beloved disciple, the beloved apostle walking with Jesus and hearing him teach people and seeing him love on people. And so much of the New Testament comes from the perspective of Paul and we get a sense of how Paul's churches function. And, and it's interesting when you're used to reading Paul and suddenly you start reading John, you kind of go, man, he's kind of got some different ideas. He thinks about things uh, differently at times. They have different focuses in mind when they're, they're writing. Uh, and so one of the things that comes through uh, in the past couple weeks when we've been in First John uh, is that John has this real focus for the church loving one another. And for the church being the members, the brothers and the sisters, he has a strong sense of family and a strong desire that they would be present to one another, that they would connect with one another, that if one member of the family has a need, that the other one would rise up and say, I've got extra, I can meet your need. And that it's unloving if someone has extra and another has a lack and the family's not taking care of one another. For John, that's unthinkable. And he talks about these images of light and darkness, of, uh, of love and of, of being unloving and hateful and, and all of these things. And, but there's just this real sense in John's letters that Christians should really be taking care of each other. And, and he has this strong insider language. And he has this also strong language about the world. He talks, he's the one that talks about how the world will hate the disciples. And if you're a follower of Jesus, don't be surprised if the world hates you. And if you're going to follow the desires of the king and the kingdom of God, you're going to have to, to move away from the desires and lust of the world. And so whenever you hear someone who has this strong sense of internal cohesiveness... And this strong sense of the external world being bad, you get the sense that for John, he is really trying to get his church communities to live out the gospel and to live out the life of being a family loving each other in very real ways. You have to remember that at this point in the church's history, uh, that they're meeting in homes, often in groups of 15 to 25 at the largest. And that there would be in any large city in Asia during this time, uh, pockets of houses across the large cities that were meeting and intermingling. And they would get together and they would break bread and they would talk about Jesus. And any one of them that had a song would sing the song and the others would join. And any one of them that had a word from the Lord would share that word. And there's this great community that's happening in all these little pockets. And so in Acts chapter 2, Luke is describing what these little pockets of Christianity that are breaking out all over Jerusalem look like. And here's how he describes them. He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship And enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. These little pockets of Christianity are contagiously breaking out all over the place. And the reason that they're breaking out is because of the way that they love each other. Most of us have had times and seasons of our life where we've had a couple other families in a small group, or whether maybe it's your family that's grown up close to you, and you have the habit of going and meeting at their house regularly. And when you're at that person's house, you know, when we're here, we're going to have fun together. When we're here, we're going to eat a meal together. When we're here, we play games together. Whatever it is that's your tradition. It may be that whenever we're here, we're going to argue about what's in the newspaper this week. That could be your tradition. But whoever it is, when you're together, you know we're going to have a good time. We're going to connect with one another. We all have these people who are our kind of special people. Well, Christianity, in its earliest years, starts taking people out of their previous people groups. And so someone might say, well, I'm a Jew, so I hang out with Jews in my family. Or I'm a Gentile, so I hang out with Gentiles in my family. And if they have a need, I'm going to take care of that need. And early on, these groups start becoming so special to one another that they begin using family language. So that they say brother and sister about one another just because, not because they're related, but because they're in Jesus Christ. They begin meeting one another's needs in the way, in the ancient world, if I have a need and I can't have it met, uh, I would expect my siblings to meet my need. In the ancient world that was even more true that, that that siblings took care of one another and suddenly in the church they start saying we're gonna take care of each other like brothers and sisters do and they start viewing outsiders as outsiders now in Paul's letters you get less of that outsider language because Paul is a, a rabid evangelist Paul is desperate for everyone else out there to become someone that's in here But John, in his letters, seems to have a focus that's more on the love of the people that are in the room. He has this idea that if the people in the room can get to where they are so loving, that the world outside will look at them and say, Man, look at the love they share for each other. Look at the love that they share. And John gets this idea, of course, from Jesus. On one occasion when Jesus was about to be arrested and to be crucified, he's teaching the apostles and John would have been sitting there. And and here's what he hears in John chapter 13. He didn't know it was called John chapter 13 yet because he hadn't written it. No one gave it numbers, but it's what we know it as today. This is from John's gospel. He remembers when Jesus said this to him and he writes about it. So we have it today. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, I now tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. I think one of the reasons this church has such a powerful testimony, and by this church I mean Northwest, this room, is that people walk in and they see people that don't look like one another, that aren't dressed like one another, that come from different backgrounds, that speak different languages, all sitting around one another loving on each other taking care of each other's needs, knowing about each other's lives, that we have a leadership that's praying for people that in the world, we may not even know one another, but because of Jesus Christ, we're each other's people. And the more that we can do that, the more the world knows that we belong to Jesus. And for John, this is so real. For Paul, his churches, he's often teaching them, the world will know that you are different because of your, your abstaining from the temptations and desires of the world. But for John, the marker of his churches, and churches are different. It's one of the things that's beautiful about Christianity is different churches look like different families in different cultures in different places, and yet they're all part of the kingdom of God. And so the churches that Paul's planting are sometimes looking different from the churches John is planting. And John, if you ask him, what is different about your churches than other churches? I'm convinced that he would say, we love each other hard. We love each other in ways that are visible and invisible, in ways that are easy, in ways that are difficult. We take care of one another in the churches that I'm planting uh, in my community. And he says, that's how the world knows that we're Jesus' followers. It's by our love for each other, our care for one another. And it shouldn't surprise us. John was there when he saw Jesus kneeling in front of him, washing his feet. John was there when he saw all the times that Jesus was loving people that others would ignore. John was there when Jesus was confronted by a mob who caught a woman in the act of adultery. And so you have this apostle who in his letters is writing about the importance of taking love and truth and holding them together, of taking obedience and care for one another and holding them together and saying these are connected and you cannot separate them. And so here's again from John's gospel. He's writing the story about the woman who is caught in adultery. It says here in John chapter 8 that at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, talking about Jesus, where all of the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? that we're using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. See, on the one hand, Jesus, who has been gracious to so many and who has taken people that the the crowd has wanted to ostracize and he's welcomed them in, and so they know if Jesus says, the law says, stoner, do it, that he'll lose his credibility with people that he's taught to about forgiveness and grace and mercy. They want to trap him in that. On the other hand, if he says, ignore the law, who cares about the law, forgive this woman, then they can go tell everyone this man dismisses the law of Moses. He's a lawbreaker and a violator of all that is sacred in our community, in our nation, in our people. He's not a keeper of covenant. And they think that this is an unbreakable trap. It's a riddle that he can't solve. It's one of many times that they try to trap Jesus in riddles and he never gets At this time, Jesus bent down, and he started to write on the ground with his finger, and we don't know what he wrote. But when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. And John's there for this, right? John would have been one of the ones that sees this happen and take place in the life of Jesus, that this trap between grace and forgiveness of loving someone who is making mistakes in their life, and the trap of being true to the law and the commands of God, how can we hold both of those together? And Jesus does it. He solves it by recognizing that nobody's perfect except for, as we all know, Him. And yet from his high stool of perfection, he spends this whole story kneeling in the dirt. As someone who has the right as a rabbi and son of God who was there when the law was written to hold her accountable and and guilty for it, he chooses to give her grace and mercy. But after everyone's gone, there's this final word that so often gets left out. You see, even non-Christians know this story and they like this story. One of the things that's very popular in our world and our culture of tolerance and of accepting all things and all people in all circumstances is this idea that Jesus always forgave people and never judged them and allowed them to continue to exist in whatever state they were and that we should do that also. And so when someone in our world today is doing things that are against God's will, the world wants to say, shouldn't we treat the world like the woman caught in adultery? And just say, listen, I can't judge you because I have sin. He can't judge you. She can't judge you. They have sins. Jesus doesn't judge her. Leave that person alone. Leave that sinner in our world alone. It's not your business what they're doing. Because it's so often the case, we miss the hook at the end of a story that so often holds something that is vital for us. This is one of those stories. The hook at the end is this. Jesus tells her, go and sin no more. He didn't say, I don't judge you, so live as you want. He says, listen, I see the sin that you've had in your life. I see the sin of unfaithfulness in your marriage. I see the sin of adultery that you've committed with this other person who is, for whatever reason, not there, also being held accountable in this moment. He says, I see all of that. But stop. Change your life. And we don't know if if she was still married to someone else that she now has to go make amends with, but that's Jesus' instruction to her. You go sort out this unhealthy relationship, end it. Go back to the healthy relationships in your life, mend them. This is a hard, hard teaching. Jesus isn't just saying, hey, stop looking at dirty magazines and she can just be like okay I won't do that again easy enough done he's telling her to go do the almost impossible work of repairing the brokenness that comes from adultery in a bad relationship and what should be a good relationship but isn't and he says go and sort it out that is a hard teaching But what Jesus is modeling to John, and what John is teaching now in his second letter that we're going to get into here in a minute, is that that for John, there are these two things of obedience and love, and he doesn't see them as being intention. In fact, for John, if you're only doing obedience, you're not loving people. And if you're only doing love, you're not being obedient. You need to be able to do both of these things that you say hard truths with grace and mercy because you love someone enough to tell them the truth. That's hard. That's not easy. But John saw how much Jesus was able to powerfully do that over and over in his ministry. I was thinking about this a minute ago, Delisa, when you came in, I caught you in a yawn, I'm sorry. (laughs) When you came in, and I thought, you do this all the time. In your ministry, people come in and you think, I love you enough to tell you the truth. And you tell them the truth, the thing that they need to hear. And there's so many of us in the world that are unwilling to tell people tough truths because it's going to be uncomfortable for me to open my mouth. We have so many people that, that, that want to tell tough, that don't want to say the tough truths because I'm afraid I'm going to offend you. But the reality is that when we're willing to tell people tough truths with grace and mercy, that's when we are loving them the most. Because not telling them the truth is just leaving them where they were. If Jesus had told this woman, go now, I don't condemn you, that's all I care about, he's not loving her. He loved her enough to say, now stop sinning and live a better life. He models this to John. And so for John's letters, you hear that he has learned this lesson and he's he's contemplated these things and it comes out in his churches and it comes out in his writing that he understands that there is an inhale and exhale to Christian living, to Christian discipleship. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to exhale the love and the grace and the forgiveness. But you have to inhale the obedience and the truth. And you go back and forth. And if you don't have one, you're not breathing and you're going to die. But if you have both, you become this embodiment of the body of Jesus. And so here's how that works in 2 John. So if you've got your Bibles, turn over to 2 John. I didn't get a PowerPoint done this week. The other bad thing about these little books is it's really hard to flip right past them. All right. 2 John. Let's get in this letter and see how these ideas and this background of John's experience with Jesus informs his letter here. He begins by saying the elder. He's announcing his name. John is at this point in his ministry, in his life, an elder in the churches. And he writes to the lady chosen by God and to her children. Some people have said at different times, he's probably writing to a lady who has children. Uh, It's way more likely that this is a title that he's giving to the churches. Part of that is because his instructions, as he goes forward, are all very plural. Uh, And if he was addressing a woman, they would be singular. But he's possibly using, some people think, that there may have been some persecution breaking out in the area where John's churches are located. And so if he says to the church that I'm writing to over here, uh, that letter could get you in trouble. But to the lady chosen by God and her children sounds like a familiar uh, family letter. And not only that, but John consistently uses family language in his letters to his churches all the time. He's that close to them. Their relationships are like that. And so he says to the lady chosen by God and to her children, probably meaning to the congregation who I'm addressing this to and the followers of Jesus that worship there, whom I love in the truth, not I only, but also all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. This is one of those things where Paul's different. If Paul's writing this, he would have said, uh, may God's grace, peace, and truth be with you. Uh, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, may it be with you. It would be a request, he would be pronouncing it. John just says, here's the thing, If we have truth and love, you're guaranteed the grace, mercy, and peace from God. It will be with you. If you hold the truth and you hold the love, if you inhale and you exhale, you get the grace, the mercy, and the peace from God. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. Uh, By the way, if you're a parent and you go to parent-teacher conferences, And someone from the school says, I am happy to tell you that some of your children are doing good. What do you know? Tell me about the other kids, right? Tell me about the other kids. What's the problem here? And John wants to get to that. Some of your children are walking in the truth. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have heard from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands, as you have heard from the beginning. His command is that you walk in love. Remember earlier John wrote in his longer gospel that Jesus said, and now I give you a new command that you love one another? John says, and now I give you an old command, one we have had from the beginning He's referencing, of course, this command that Jesus gives us, that we love each other, and that's how the world knows that we're his disciples. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. I have much, more to, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister, who is chosen by God, send their greetings. Likely meaning from my congregation to yours, I send greetings. John's writing and he gets to this section about the deceivers and the liars. uh, And he gets to this point and, and he is telling them, There are some from within you who are going out and teaching evil stuff. They are deceivers and anti-Messiahs. They are anti-Christ. They are anti-Jesus. This is a tough teaching. We're again getting into these places where the scripture is giving us something that makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. We like to think of anti-Christ as the devil and his buddies. And that the devil and his buddies out in the world like to come into the church and like to give us uh, trouble and like to give us persecution and like to teach things that are not of the church. But you have to notice which way they're moving in John's letter. They are in the church and now they're going out into the world as anti-messiahs, as deceivers and as liars. And the lie that they're deceiving, and John mentioned this in, in, in the communion talk this morning, is that Jesus Christ was not incarnated and did not come in the flesh to this world, did not die on the cross and was not resurrected. That, that Jesus, the divine, could not become a lowly, vile, physical being. That that didn't make sense to them. And so they instead started to claim some kind of that Jesus was always spirit, that Jesus was never in the flesh, that Jesus was not incarnate in in the body, that he didn't have to deal with the challenges of the flesh and the burdens of temptation. And they have all these different spiritual, super spiritual teachings that make sense in a Greek world and not as much in ours that they're proclaiming. But what we need to remember today is that if anyone claims to be Christian but denies that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, then they are anti-Messiahs. They are deceivers. And they have come to bring poison to the gospel and to the kingdom of God. For John, he says, listen, if there are people who are proclaiming that Jesus is not the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me, in the family of God, you got to get them out. That's poison stuff. That's dangerous you can't let something that dangerous in your house. It will harm you. You can't let something that dangerous in your church. It will harm you. And he has this shocking statement where he says, if they come to you and try and spread these deceptions among you, then shut your doors. Do not welcome them. You can't let that kind of deception in. And it feels challenging to us. It feels out of bounds for us. Isn't this the same Jesus that says, if someone strikes you, turn to them the other cheek? And if there's a stranger at your door, welcome them in. And you're supposed to love your enemies. And that you're supposed to, on and on again, offer incredible grace to people. Jesus teaches this all the time. And so when John says, listen, if there's someone who's not teaching Jesus and that he is the Messiah, you don't let him in your house, you don't let him in your church. That feels judgy to us. That feels like it's not consistent with some of the things that Jesus says. For example, in John 14, the chapter right after we were reading earlier, Jesus comforts his disciples right before he leaves, and here's what he tells them do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him, because they've seen the Son. And if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. And so here we have, again, these two ideas. In God's house, there are many, many rooms. Does everybody get in? God wants everybody to come in. But there's a way that you get in God's house. And they ask him, well, how do we get there? Is there a map? Is there a guide? Are there instructions? Is it by Bethany? Is it, is it Antioch? That would be surprising. We know it's not Galilee. And where, how do we get to God's house with all the rooms that we want to live in? Jesus says, there's not a map, there's me. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. If you try to get to God's house any other way, the door is shut. I'm it, I'm the way. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you believe in me, you believe in the Father. If you go with me, I'll take you into my Father's house. If you try and get there without me, you can't get in. That's the story, and we read this in Jesus' ministry, and we think about how John would have been there and present in this moment, and he's writing about it so we can know it, and now he's writing a letter to his churches and say, if anyone denies Jesus, shut them out because they don't get to come in. Well, why would he say such a judgmental thing? Because Jesus is saying, you can't get into the da- my dad's house without me. And there's people in John's churches who are saying, we don't need this Jesus, we'll just claim the spirituality stuff. We live in a world today where there are people who say, I'm spiritual, non-religious, I believe in God but not Jesus, or I believe that there's other paths to get to the Father's house that don't involve the Son. The problem is that you can't get into the Father's house if you're not going with the Son. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, the Son of God. So today we live in a world where love is supposed to mean tolerance, where you can insist on anything but not tell someone else that they're wrong, that it's unloving to the person not only doing it but claiming that, that we know the right thing and that they're wrong is in some way arrogant and that it is oppressive. That you should never say, there's a right way and a wrong way, and my way is right and your way is wrong. But there is a problem that the call for tolerance runs into pretty quickly, is that a position of extreme tolerance is, in fact, extremely intolerant to people that have uh, worldviews that take a definite stance. If we believe what John believes, we as Christians have to take a definite stance that the Son gets you in the Father's house and nothing else does. And the world which desires tolerance becomes intolerant to that point of view in a way that is frustrating and often leaves us feeling uh, trapped in our own desire to share with the world the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth. In life, And so we need to bear in mind that when we're reading a passage like this, that we can't just go out and tell the world that they're wrong and we're right. And that's okay, because John doesn't want us to pursue obedience only, does he? He wants us to be grace-filled and loving and merciful and holding these two things together as the inhale and exhale of Christian discipleship that speaks the truth in love. A couple weeks ago, we had Tyler Britton, one of our our missionaries that Northwest supports. He was over here on a Tuesday night. We had pizza, and he was talking about the work that he's doing in Tampa, Florida. Uh, And and he's down there, and he's making relationships with Muslims who are are refugees and immigrants to the United States. And he's he's talking to them, uh, these Arabic immigrants to the United States, about Jesus Christ. And they're willing to have religious conversations because they're very religious people. And he says, listen, here's the thing. He says, I grew up with a stepdad who was uh, Muslim and who took me to mosque. And I practiced Ramadan and I did the fast. And I have this huge respect for Islam. I love the Muslim people but I believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. So here's the thing. If I really love my Muslim brothers and sisters, and if I really believe Jesus is the way to get to the Father, I have to introduce them. I have to tell them the truth. I can't just tell them, keep believing what you've always believed for centuries in in your part of the world and in your culture. I have to tell them, I respect you, and I love you, and I respect your culture, but your culture and your beliefs don't get you to the Father. And he says that, and there's part of us, because we are just washed in this culture of tolerance that kind of just goes, Oh, that feels mean. That feels intolerant. But he says, listen, if I love them, I don't have a choice. And I do love them, and I believe in obedience. And so I live in this space of inhaling and exhaling relationships with them that try and bring them into relationship with Jesus, because that's where the truth is. We must be willing to tell vital truths to people who are pursuing soul destroying deceptions. John ends with this great piece of wisdom. He says, listen, I want to write to you much more, but it'd be better if I did it face-to-face. And here's here's what I would offer you. This is one of the rules that that me and my family try to live by. If there's ever something that you can do in a letter, but you could also do it voice-to-voice, do it voice-to-voice. And if there's ever something you can do in a text or over the phone that you could also do in person, do it in person. It's easier to have the vital truths of life face to face than it is in a letter. John knows that. He says, listen, we've got to talk about more stuff, but I'm going to get over there and you and I are going to talk about it because we've got to work through some of this stuff. Always do face to face what you are able to do. But we've got to tell the vital truths to people whose souls are at risk because of the deceptions of this world. And here's what I mean when I say that. It's awful to tell someone that they have cancer. It's terrible news unless it opens the door for them to receiving life-saving treatment. It's incredibly cruel to go to someone and say, get out of the house right now. Get out of my house unless that house is on fire. And then telling them to get out is the only loving action that you can take. It's judgmental to tell someone they are wrong and need to repent unless it saves their soul. Kicking someone out of the church is cruel unless they have become poison to the body and to the kingdom, and they need to be removed so that the body can remain a group of people believing that Jesus is the Messiah and the only way to get into the Father's house. We have to hold to these difficult conversations and these difficult truths and be willing to say them to one another face-to-face when possible so that together we might all be saved when Jesus comes back and wants to know, did you tell him the truth? Did you tell him the truth? And did you do it with love? And did you do it with grace? Say, I don't condemn you, but sin no more. We've got to find the ways to embrace the inhale and exhale of the teachings of John. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, this is the gospel that I need to respond to, that Jesus Christ died to save me from my sins. If you're here today and you need to uh, be praying that you have the courage and ability to tell someone in your life the truth with grace and love and wisdom, you can pray that and just ask that God would give that to you. And you can do that this morning while we stand and sing.